we uh, there's not a rule that you have to do, use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Alrighty, hello everybody. Welcome back to the 41st episode of the Third Sub Podcast. And I hope everyone, I uh, hope you're doing well. You had a good long weekend, Labor Day weekend. I know I had a pretty good weekend, spent some time watching some good old Canadian soccer. And then on a, the Monday, spent a, a day with the family. So it's always nice. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Gungaruzic. I'm here with Samuel Rowboat, or Rowan, a.k.a. Samuel Rowboat. But he had a great weekend. I mean, he didn't get to watch the Whitecaps live. He spent it in the bush camping. And maybe he should have watched the Whitecaps live because they won. They won. But I guess before we talk about this rare Whitecaps victory, their third of the year, I mean, how, how was your, your, your long weekend, Sam? Yeah, I really enjoyed the long weekend and uh, hope everyone out there did as well. Uh, enjoying a little bit, of, little bit of camping service-free north of Pemberton. So I was completely unplugged, did not see any of the CPL action, any of the Whitecaps action. Um, missed out on, uh, this is kind of random to bring up, but the, uh, the match of the century between Gibraltar and San Marino. I don't know Oof. if anyone tuned into that one, but a big victory for Gibraltar. You know, if Nations kind of League expected, if Nations fair. League is your thing, it was worth checking out. But uh, yeah, the Whitecaps with a victory. I'm very pleased that the four teams I predicted going through to the second stage of the CPL have indeed done so. So that was pretty cool. And uh, man, lots to get into with this Whitecaps match. So full disclosure, I have only just finished watching the match this morning. I did see the score in advance of this morning, but I didn't see who scored goals when they were scored. So in terms of the flow of the game, I was pretty fresh to it. And so I think I've got some, some good points to bring up because oftentimes when we end up watching the matches, you're either on Twitter a lot, you're talking with other people. If you're in the stadium, there's distractions. And maybe Alex is going to get into a bit what the experience was like at the stadium, given all the changes in comparison to normal. But I think I've got some good stuff to bring to this one today because of the ability to kind of sit back with it after the fact and uh, share some thoughts about it. But Alex, you were actually there. So I, I guess first kind of take us to that experience, what the differences were and, and how, yeah, how you enjoyed being at the match, albeit in, in strange circumstances. It was, it was interesting. I mean, uh, obviously new experience. I mean, when you get to go to the games, usually uh, you have a routine, you show up. Um, obviously now with uh, some of the new rules, the routine was a bit different. You show up, you get your temperature checked, you have to do a, an assessment. You go into your stadium, uh, the, your seat, you can't really move. You can't you kind of just watch and warm up from the press box. Um, you can tell on the field protocols different. The photographers are in different locations. The video people are different locations. The field is set up a little different. And and then as the game goes, like there's just a little lots of little details change. Like for example, instead of usually sitting in the press box, the players that weren't playing all sat in the seats around this kind of in in all in one area, but in the stadium. Ditto with Axel Schuster and Greg Anderson. They're just sitting in the stands and when TFC came in two buses, I know cause I was walking to the stadium and uh, one of their buses ran a red light, big scoop. Um, 
<laughs> but uh you know they, they came in two buses which is pretty unique obviously before you'd kind of just pack in one bus but social distancing um I mean, but then after that, everything was pretty normal. Warm-ups happened as normal. There was no national anthem, which I was quite happy for because it's club soccer. There's no need for national anthems. That's pretty much, that is, that is that. And I'm happy MLS as of late has just decided to cut anthems at all their games. And I think there's kind of we progressed past a need for national anthems as a sporting society. So that was nice. That was different. Hopefully they keep that up. And then the game just started. It was weird because first of all, first kickoff you're you're like oh what's it going to be like with no fans and there was some piped in crowd noise which you could hear on the broadcast but from the press box we were right under the speakers so. you could you could definitely hear it on the broadcast yeah i think it was because there were the mics where they were picking up i did notice on the broadcast it was easy actually easier to pick up what the players were saying than it was in the press box heard, heard a lot from mark dos santos i don't know they must have had a hot mic near him or something because i think they had a, a mic he had to say yeah, no, they definitely had a mic between him and Vanny. I mean, uh, Greg Vanny, sorry, because you have to mention there's Vanny Startini on the other bench. But between him and Greg Vanny, so obviously you heard a lot on the TV. And then from us, you could sort of hear some stuff, did hear some funny conversations. And, you know, Pablo Piatti, for example, uh, he has a pretty high-pitched, uh, funny voice that was yapping all game, and it was pretty funny to hear. And there's some other memorable moments of uh if of dialogue between the both teams but aside from that it was a pretty normal game is it, it felt pretty normal aside from the little changes and obviously the last big difference is that the press conference you didn't maybe weren't all packed into a big room but you did kind of have more it felt like you were more involved in the in the press conference asking questions so it was just a interesting experience and i think uh hopefully fans can come back so i do think it would be enriched by fans eventually when they can uh, return in a safe manner but i do think it was uh just good to be at bc place it's a great stadium and uh the white caps clearly uh like being there on saturday let's say and on the other side from my perspective uh it was interesting to see this is the first time we're seeing a you know covid style broadcast done at bc place so at first, they had that bell logo over the center circle, which was interesting. And then you've got the, the CGI kind of covers on the stands, which, you know, at first when we were, we were at MLS's back and they were putting ads up and they were kind of, you know, doing all this superimposed stuff, it, it seemed crazy. And now it's kind of gotten to the point where you've watched enough sports under these circumstances where it feels very normal and, you know, to the point where I almost didn't even notice it. But Kind of hopping into the match, uh, one thing I noticed right away was obviously shape was a little bit different. No Ranko Vasilinovic at the back. And the Whitecaps opened with some pretty high-intensity pressing, but kind of as per usual, it, it dropped off very quickly. And I think something I just want to start out with, maybe the biggest thing I noticed throughout the match, and I think this is something that's been happening over the past little while for the white caps, but maybe just because I had the chance to, you know, take this in at a delayed time, the white caps almost focused too much energy on pressing really high up the pitch. You get guys like Cavallini and Milinkovic running to close down when a defender's 20 yards from their own goal. But then once that first initial press gets beat, they don't keep up that pressure. And so you saw time after time after time, Piatti and Pozuelo 
once that initial press had been beaten, they can run in acres of space. And then they're also buzzing around the edge of the box without a lot of pressure. And often those guys that had pressed upfield were recovering. And because they were recovering, it gave those dangerous players for TFC way, way, way too much time. And I mean, I think despite the scoreline, there's still some, some team defensive issues for the Whitecaps there. I just, it's tough because I think my issue with the press was that the 4 3 1 2 just doesn't press well against teams like TFC. They got and, broken down so easily. Yeah, no, I, I think the 4 3 1 2, it's a good formation. I'm a fan of the formation itself. I don't know if maybe it's the right formation for the Whitecaps. And there are questions to be had. Yet another formation. And then obviously they win with this one, but I. I'm still going to stick with the 4-3-3 just because I think what they offered offensively with the 4-3-1-2, because they did look good offensively in patches. I think you still get that with the 4-3-3, but at least in the 4-3-3, they press so much better. I think we noticed it against Montreal because the way the banks are set up, I think when they press high with two, Milinkovic, who, to be honest, he's the best presser on the Whitecaps aside from Cavallini, he didn't get to use his pressing ability because he was kind of stuck in the hole. And once they broke that, the that was such it was such an awkward position for Milinkovic to be in. I, I don't know why he continues to play. Him and Dahomey are both being played out of position right now, and it's it's pretty frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it's like when the two strikers were broken, it was kind of just this the, with Milinkovic kind of in no man's land and Toronto playing a five man midfield. They just kind of outmanned the Whitecaps, and I think that's normal. That's tactic. I think maybe. In a 4-3-3, what you see often now, if you, guys, if you watch a lot of games, I've noticed this, is that 4-3-3s turn into 4-4-2s when defending because often the number 10 will play as a, kind of a striker when pressing and then the wingers will drop back. And there, that takes away a lot of the space. I think in a 4-3-3 and you're seeing a 4-4-2 with Dahomey and Milinkovic, who are really good defenders for wingers, I think that problem would have been a lot less apparent. But to give credit to the 4-3-1-2, because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to dampen the enthusiasm after a, a pretty solid victory over a really good team to give them credit. It worked wonders offensively and they looked a lot more involved, but the pressing is a concern and Toronto's a really good team and they could have gotten so many more opportunities than they did and credit to Saul and the defenders for standing strong. And yeah, against the team, like I, mean, I can't think of a team off the top of my head, but a team with the lesser offense, they're going to be more than fine. But you do worry against teams, high-flying teams. Okay, can they score enough to make up for the some of the spaces they were giving in wide areas? So, again, for that, I think the four-three-three with the players they had on the pitch, Bear Milinkovic, Cavallini, that's a quality front three. Baldissimo, a combination of Baldissimo, Tybert, Owusu, Bikel, that's a more than capable midfield. I just think maybe the setup defensively wasn't there, but... I love the offensive, how fluid fluid it was, how they were moving. And uh, so it's just kind of a, a case of little details that maybe bothered me a bit. But I'm, I'm sure DeSantos and his squad will hopefully work on those ahead of the Montreal game. Yeah, and in terms of offense and fluidity, one of the biggest things that stood out was how much more involved Ali Adnan was. And, you know, I think we've spoken about this before on the podcast where – if Ali Adnan's a designated player, he needs to move the needle and make game-breaking plays on a nightly basis for the Whitecaps. And he certainly did that in this one. A number of great balls, either on set pieces or, uh, 
you know, just charging down the wing. And, and, and he seemed actually really up to the task defensively as well. I mean, he got the, got the yellow card there a bit early on for what you might like, but that's kind of par for the course for uh, Ali Adnan. But interested, Alex, to hear, hear your thoughts on his performance because I thought he really kind of brought his game up to another level and, and stood out. I thought that maybe it might not have been his most flashy game, but that might have been as good as a game as I've seen Ali Adnan in a white cap shirt. And obviously in my post-game report, our player to watch before the game was Baldissimo, so I couldn't give him the man of the match just because you know, I didn't want to talk about him too much. I picked Ali Adnan. I think that was, I feel like that was a fair justification for him because he just, he wasn't spectacular, like, as he can be. He wasn't dribbling as many people, but he had two really solid assists. He was making just, dis, like, disruptive runs, runs that made Toronto's defense kind of destabilize. And he was just overall, like, defensively, he, for the most part, besides maybe that, second goal where it came, the ball originated from the left side obviously it was more of a midfield it was one of those deeper balls so Adnan maybe isn't a hundred percent at fault you do wonder but I thought he was mostly defensively committed and offensively I think we saw a lot of what we can what he can do and I think people always say a three five two could get the best out of Adnan I agree with that statement but I still think in a four at the back formation as long as you have stability in midfield and I think someone like Michael Baldissimo provided that for him if you can get him the ball in space and in transition and make sure you cover for him and Russell Tybert to give him credit covered for him a few times when he did cut, get cut out. I think he's uh he showed his value there. Maybe, you know, he showed that, okay, having a DP as a left back, maybe it isn't the best use of your resources, but it isn't a bad one either. So to talk about the other, um, you know, top contributor that you pointed out there, Michael Baldissimo, I mean, another, Another terrific match for the youngster. Obviously, not only the goal and the celebration, but just his his all round play again at a at a really high level. But something I was kind of pondering when I watched that that first goal, where obviously Baldy kind of switches play and releases Adnan, who can then play the ball into the box to Cavallini. And Alex, you were mentioning this right before the podcast that you know that's the kind of goal that Mark Dos Santos draws up or puts on the bulletin board and says, this is the way we need to play. But the question I was asking myself is like, it's, it's a very good ball from Baldissimo, but you would think that like, shouldn't all of your midfielders be able to do that on the, like the fact that a ball like that looks so out of the norm for the white caps is certainly part of the problem. And it's great to see Baldissimo step in and provide that, but it's just like guys like, Owusu, Inbaum when he was here, Tybert, you'd like to see that on a more regular basis. And I think, you know, obviously that stems a bit from the the overall team play. It's not just down to the midfielders, but I'm interested for your thoughts there. It's tough because, I mean, I don't want to say there's a lack of talent because if you look at their game footage, like Inbaum and Owusu can play these deadly switches. And even Russell Tybert, he's got a surprising left foot on him and Obviously, I think with Tybert, it's maybe just the way he plays. He tends to look for, you know, it's nothing. It's not maybe his fault. It's just kind of his mentality as a player to play. For him, a safer pass isn't the same as a safe pass for Baldissimo. Because I just, Baldissimo's confidence is through the roof. Like, what kind of kid is going to be playing balls like that where he touches? He doesn't even look up. He just zings it right onto the foot of Adnan. And Obviously, maybe the Whitecaps, it's more of a confidence thing. I know Owusu, I know Tybert can play these balls. I'm sure Bakel can play these balls. 
but it just shows you how much of a difference it makes to play those sorts of balls and to have someone with confidence in the midfield. It feels like, for me, Baldissimo, yes, technically, he's gifted, he's two-footed, he's got a, he's got a heck of a skill, you know, a heck of a locker of skills, of passes and shots as he's showed. But I don't, like, you look at other midfielders, they have it, but they don't have it. They don't have that factor. With Baldissimo, one thing I noticed when I was, in, you know, in the press box, you can kind of hear and you're closer to the game. You could hear him scream for balls. You can hear the confidence he has. You could see, I would watch him in, when uh, the defenders would get the ball. He'd come in, he'd ask for the ball. And I just, you don't see that often from the Whitecaps, it seems. They, there's just a confidence crisis in the midfield. And I think that, for me, is the biggest thing Baldissimo brought. Yeah, I think it's a good point that it's been a consistent issue that the Whitecaps players don't necessarily get all out of what they have to offer. It feels like year after year, it's been the guy has the quality, but he just can't use it to full effect on a nightly basis. And it's an incredibly small sample size. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get carried away. But Baldissimo, through two matches, it feels like not only does he have some, some talent, but he's also not afraid to go out there and use it on a, on a nightly basis. And hopefully that's something that's going to continue. And you have to think now that through two matches, he gets a extended run and extended look throughout the, the rest of this, you know, in air quotes, regular season. And Hey, the in bomb transfer in reality may be a huge blessing in disguise, certainly for Baldissimo, but maybe for the Whitecaps as a whole, because it gives this young guy an opportunity to get in and prove himself. Well, I mean, like, is it's fair to say? I feel like it's two games, and you don't want to blow up the hype machine too much. But from oh, I, I just feel like through two games already, I think we saw more from Baldismo than we saw from Inbom. Over, like, obviously Inbom had these flashes, but like over two games, I'm already feeling at like a fraction of the cost. You're seeing a lot more from Baldissimo than we're in bomb. And that's not a slight to in bomb. He's been great for Kazan so far. I think he's found a team that's it fits him more just because the again, MLS, he he's one of the highest paid players. The way it was imbalanced towards him. I don't think that that's a fit question that we've had recent weeks since he was sold. Whereas Baldissimo at the value he's providing, I, I'm I'm it's such a great it was so great to see what he's brought. And I think that's just it's not a slight on Inbom at all, I want to say. It's just I feel like it's worth noting that in two games, I feel like we've seen more from Baldissimo than we saw from Inbom. I mean, at least maybe cumulatively, because I think combined, Inbom showed more moments, and that's just because he played more games. But I think already, if Baldissimo plays like this in 20 games, if he keeps at a similar trajectory, already been a, I think his stint, a stint, I mean, he's a homegrown, but his play for Vancouver would already be more impactful. And I just think it's the mentality. We spoke, I think specifically, I remember a podcast where we're like, Inbom looks shy. I want him to spray a pass and mess up or tackle a guy or take a shot. Baldissimo is doing all those things. I mean, maybe he's not a defensive stalwart, but I saw a few times where the ball was there. He wasn't scared. He, 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 gets, in. he gets stuck in for sure. And it's not always pretty. And sometimes it's a foul, and, but he's okay with that. And I think Inbom yeah. at times is almost scared to take a yellow. And he had moments where he did, but it just wasn't consistent. It, it, it was. And then you think of the goal. Like, he took the shot and he didn't think. He's like, I don't care if I miss. I'm going to shoot. Or he takes these passes where I, he even messed up a few where he'd send them right out of bounds. But at least he was trying. And I think I like his eye for the game. That's, for me, my most impressive thing is just he, he has his eye for progression, pressing the ball, 
you know, when Peter Galindo was on, we joked about the pr- destroy and progress midfielder. He's doing that. I just, it's, it's, you know, it just boggles the mind to think that maybe the Vancouver number six solution was in the academy the whole time and we didn't get a chance to see it until now. But for whatever reason, we've always talked since last year, getting a number six that can destroy and progress. Well, he's showing what Yana Rise could do offensively while also actually being a half competent and mobile defender. So it's just like, it's been great on a multitude of fronts. Let's just uh, sum it up at that. Right. And so kind of switching a bit from, from the positives of the first half to the negatives, I do want to touch on Azorio's equalizer and what, and what I kind of noticed. And, and, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but you have that moment at midfield where there's a free kick given and you just see this is maybe 20 seconds before the goal is scored and all the Whitecaps players are just kind of trotting about without any real purpose, just kind of without a lot of intent and a couple balls are the balls switch to the other side of the field, long balls played through TFC is attacking. The next thing you know, it's in the back of the net. And I think, as much as Mark DeSanto so put that first goal for the Whitecaps up on the bulletin board, defensively, that's where the consistency lacks. You still have these moments of switching off. You still have these moments where your team lacks pressure. And again, it's not like you get all these Whitecaps defensive performances where you're not looking at the center backs. You're not looking at any one player and saying, oh, they were very poor. But just overall, as a team, it's there's these moments of weakness where it's not quite good enough. Yeah, it was a frustrating goal just because it wasn't a particularly glamorous breakdown. It wasn't like a breakdown where you look like... Not like someone trips and falls or gets beat terribly. Or a giveaway or a shambolic... It was was just... It was just poor all around. It was just frustrating because Alejandro Pozuelo, which... I remind you, with that assist, I think that was his eighth assist of the year. He leads the league in assists. He's a quality player. And, I mean, to give the guy credit, he's made a career out of showing up in between lines. He kills teams between lines. That's, his, that's what he does. It's just frustrating to see him so open because the ball went out to the right wing. I think it was Piatti. He looks up and it's just the best, basically the best playmaker in MLS standing there wide open in between the lines. And you just felt like something bad's going to happen. I mean, I rewatched the goal though. To give Osorio credit, that was a ridiculous finish. Oh, like it, so it wasn't. Un- it was so casual that it, he made it look simple, but that was like, a terribly difficult finish. That's like I, 9.5 out of 10 on the difficulty scale. Oh, I'd give that an XG of like 0.01 for even how close it was ridiculous. I, it, for, it, at first, I'm like, oh, that's a goal as soon as Pozuelo crossed it and, and live from our angle. But watching again on the replay, like uh, the margins he to put it in the side net first time in the air, like ridiculous goal. I mean, but at the same time, it was just, it was unfortunate because it was just a ridiculous play. Uh, like the pass from Pozuelo is just pure class. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to, like, I don't want to be drooling over this goal, but you just look at it. Curled through behind two defenders, onside, taken on the volley. Like, incredible. But that sort of space shouldn't be given to those players. That's what they do when they give you space. So you can't moan. And obviously, if it's a team, I'm trying to struggle. I don't want to single out a, a team in particular here. But maybe, or just maybe to even to turn the cards. Like, if the Whitecaps get that spot at the top of the box, do you see them doing that? No, yet. But when you play teams like TFC, 
well, at least not consistently yet from the white caps. But when you see guys like TFC constantly do that week in, week out, it's just frustrating to see a goal like that given up. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much more to add to that other than it's a bit of a theme for uh, for the second goal, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But I just wanted to last thought from the first half was I have written down in my notes, Hassal save on Piatti. Wow. Because he really got across athletically and aggressively. And just, I think we're just taking for granted at this point that Thomas Hassal is a, is a great young keeper and it, it doesn't even feel like a blip on the radar. It's just kind of, yep, Hassal's back there. We don't have to worry about it. And it's amazing how much that narrative has shifted from the Whitecaps losing Max Kerpo and kind of, oh no, what are we going to do next to Hassal being a guy that can be relied upon night in, night out? He's a good keeper. I don't, it's like, I don't it's know as simple as that, right? Like, he's the quality keeper. He's tall, I mean, which is always helps, but he moves so well. He's got a great leap in him. He's positionally, he's pretty sound for the most part. I mean, the first goal, again, like you said, ridiculous first goal, second goal, again, like, someone's heading it from your box two feet away from you more on that later. That just, you're not going to get mad at the goalkeeper. Like he's for the most part, the goals he's let in, like they're not, you can't really fault him, but he's a, it's just, it's tough. Cause you, you look at Max Crepeau, he's the guy they paying him. They paid him a well-deserved contract. He's the Canada's national team, second goalie on arguably good enough to be the first goalie. Like, it's going to be a tough decision if you're the Whitecaps. I mean, I think the ideal thing is that you sell Hassal. As tough as it is, you get a good buck for him because there's definitely going to be interest at his age and what he can do. And run with Crepo as the number one guy. But I just like that this decision has become so much tougher. And I, it's going to be a really tough decision what you do. Because I, I, if Hassal is here, I want to see him play. And that's not a slight on Crepo because Crepo is a great goalie. And I love to see him play too. I just that's where it's so tough too. like oh, I don't know what what the best solution for that maybe it's kind of a thing where you sell high on Hassal I think he's a great young keeper and if he goes abroad to Europe he can easily be the top Canadian keeper within two or three years if he keeps working but either way that's if you're the Whitecaps that's a great problem to have so uh, it's just good to go show that they have this quality in their academy I, I just want to expand on what you brought up there if if we're talking about Thomas Hassall, you know, moving on here, say in the next, in the next year, where do you think that would be both from a player's perspective, where would you like to go? And if you're the white caps, where are you, you know, trying to shop him? If that's something you're interested. I do think um, just the top eight European league. I think if you're a Belgian team, he could be really attractive to you because they've really looked at Canadians and I think he'd be at a good price. I think goalkeepers for the market, I think one, two mil, maybe three mil. Obviously you'd like more if you're the white caps, but I guess it's not going to be a, an astounding fee, but good nonetheless for a homegrown, if not uh, Netherlands, like maybe leagues like that, or even a lower, lower team in the Bundesliga. Obviously those are high teams and goalkeepers. But, but what is, what is nice is that at, 21 you can still give him some time in a in an under 23 squad or something like that especially if he goes to a slightly larger club to see some minutes before you kind of progress him along or you see a lot of those clubs they do you know they do lots of loan spells and so you could you know you don't necessarily have to play for the first club you're at either so there's lots of lots of opportunities there yeah it's tough because obviously i think it's chichiro adunze who 
obviously he's younger than Hassal. He's more physically gifted maybe than Hassal. I mean, to be fair, he's, he, at 16, he was like 6'6", six, six, and he was just a, a specimen of a human being. And even he's struggling. at not struggling at Leicester. He's young, like, but... But they have, a, not, they have an incredible youth system, too, there at Leicester. Yeah. So it's not easy to break your way in. And they have Casper Schmeichel. Like, obviously, he's not going to play. I'm not going to say it's a struggle. But I just think that's the reality of goalkeepers. It's not easy to break through at whatever level. And we've seen that time after time. Think of Marco Carducci as a prime example. I think if this Crepo injury doesn't happen, Hastal could have easily been the next Marco Carducci. And that's not to say he won't, maybe who knows what's going to happen. The vol- it's such a volatile position. Maybe he falls off. Maybe he keeps growing. You have no idea. I think personally from what we've seen, his mentality is through the roof. He's got the, kind of like if we talk about Baldissimo having it, I think Hassal definitely has it. I mean, from what he's been thrown into, he has it. So I think he's going to keep growing. So we don't know, but it's just, it's, that's the thing with goalkeeper. You need an opportunity. So who knows how it's going to go and what happens when he goes abroad. But I definitely think if you're the Whitecaps, it's, it's a great problem to have, but it's definitely one that, because uh, either you're going to have one or one or two good goalies, and if not, you're going to sell high on one of them. So it's, a, it's kind of a win-win either way. Yeah, well, the reason I, I pose you that question is because I think going into 2020, if you'd have told either of us, hey, Thomas Assal's either going to go out on loan or get sold to a CPL team and get an opportunity there, you would have gone, yep, that's great. Like, that's the chance he needs. And now you feel like after what he's shown at the MOS level, he's going to, as you said, potentially go on to a country like Belgium or the Netherlands or something like that. And so it's just, it's crazy how quickly things can change. And as you said, how all you need is that opportunity. And then the feelings, the the narrative around you as a player can change so dramatically. Cause I mean, we've seen the quality Thomas Assal has for a couple of years now. It just hasn't been on display and you don't really know sometimes at training until these players get in matches and same thing goes for Baldissimo. You, until you have that frame of reference, it's very difficult to kind of evaluate how a guy looks at training in terms of how it'll actually pan out at a certain level of competition. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy. We talk about the youth development all the time and it's tough because I think we both agree having, for example, a second team, it's something we've talked about a lot and we'll continue to talk about it a lot. It helps because you get to see more of a, you know, because it feels like when you go from the academy to the first team, it's just a huge gulf that it's not an easy jump to take. And these players, credit to them for being talented enough to even take that jump. But it would just, it, it makes you wonder, imagine if these guys had already been playing pro minutes at a maybe not the first team level, but below it. And then they're dominating and then they have the confidence and they come up and you just wonder how many guys that you're missing just because they're not, there's just no room for them. Like you see Baldissimo, Hassal, Bear, Metcalf doing great, but you wonder what could someone like Simon Coline do? Because obviously physically there's a lot of questions about him and many around the club, you always hear like he's among all the guys around his age, he's on the ball and and like technically and all that. He's top is for him. It's physicality and other issues that are holding him back. You think of guys like Gianfranco Facinari, who's shown well in the CPL. Obviously, there's it was a great loan move for him. You think of a guy like Damiano Pasil, who's still young but hasn't got that shot. You think of George Mukumbawa, who's for my money is one of the less more underrated prospects, and he's just hasn't had a chance. Unfortunately, I think you think of those guys, you're like, wow, what are you missing now that you see that these academy kids like they're for real. We, I mean, 
it's it, I guess it's credit not credit to us because like I don't want to like pat myself on the back but I guess maybe maybe we were more on point than we thought and you know Mark DeSantis would always say you don't want to hold up the brakes clearly there was some talent there so we're not far off and again I agree with him you got to ease your kids in you don't want to put the moon on them when they're not ready to hold all those expectations but these kids can play that's all I've kind of learned these past few weeks so the more chances to get the minutes the better it would be nice to have a second team but hey these kids can play so may as well get used to them because at the very least they're a lot cheaper than some of these imports you're playing and they're playing a lot better than them so <laughs> it's a win-win yeah I mean if anyone if anyone followed my writing last year at 86 forever it felt like every article somehow bled into you know some kind of manifesto on the Whitecaps development squad and and the academy system and how they could look to get those players more involved but even even I don't think I could have expected to see guys like Baldissimo and Hassal come in and make the impact they have this season. And obviously that's due to a wide variety of factors that couldn't have been predicted last season. But yeah, first and foremost, the credit goes to those guys for coming in and doing the job because no one can, no one can do that for them, no matter how much hype or interest they have behind them, they have to go out there and perform and, and they've done so, so far. But uh, so kind of transitioning into some topics from the second half. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Alex, especially because you were there in person, was Russell Tybert's role in the midfield. Because something I noticed on a lot of TFC's good chances and as well as their goals is Russell Tybert was obvious, most often the guy kind of late arriving, trying to get in there with a block or trying to break up a pass or a shot. And I don't necessarily know if that's all down to Tybert. Often he's, as you said, kind of off covering for Adnan, off filling in holes elsewhere in the midfield. But it feels like more often than not, Tybert was the guy kind of arriving late, trying to close down just as a good chance was happening. Yeah, I don't know. He's, it's a tough one to, to gauge with his role because, I don't know, recently I don't – I don't think we've seen maybe the best of Russell Tybert. It, I mean, it wasn't maybe. his best match, I think is what I'm getting at, but I don't know how much of that is down to what's being asked of him versus his individual performance. Yeah, because I don't think he's, he's – you can't fault the man's work effort. I don't think that's ever going to be a problem with him, but there's just some time in a fit – sometimes in the fit he's asked to do, it's just – for whatever reason, I'll have these games. Like I think of LA Galaxy this year. I think of Toronto FC two years ago. Some other games where he's just he gets it done. He's he's he can you surprisingly what he can do on both sides of the ball. He he's an effective player. And then there's just games like this one where he's just kind of out of the game. And I don't think he was bad. It just felt like you did wonder in a game at moments could you have used more of a a mid, just a different kind of midfielder just to give your, your team a different look because it feels like sometimes he fades in the games. You don't notice him a bunch. And while for a defender, that's a great thing. Sometimes for a box-to-box -box midfielder, that's not as great of a thing. So I, I think maybe it comes down to kind of a, a mix of formation and tactical fit and kind of the opponent. But I, I, I would say it was more definitely the – the game itself. But I, I do think there's more from him. I do wonder if he needs a rest. He's played 80 plus minutes in every game, which is no one else has come close to that. So maybe it is time with Bikel's fitness starting to get up there. Do you try a 
you know, a, a midfield where you see kind of a double pivot of Bikel and uh, Baldissimo with the Wusu further forward completely freed up, you do wonder that because maybe it's time to give Tybert and give him some minutes off of the bench because he's, again, with his work ethic, he's always a huge piece to have off of the bench because you know what you're going to get from him because maybe I just think offense as a starter recently, it just hasn't been hasn't been his best games because he's not doing what he can do. He's Because when he's on his game, when he's passing, he's dribbling, he's defensively pressing, he's on his game. But right now, you're not seeing all of that right at the moment. Yeah, and so kind of moving on from that, the Whitecaps, obviously, Baldissimo scores that wonder goal on the second phase of a free kick. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything about the whole idea of lying down behind the wall because I found that kind of entertaining but uh yeah i don't know first first i want to see if you have anything to say about that because i i thought i thought that just in general tfc's strategy on set pieces was a bit interesting they only had one player and i think it was pozuelo kind of freed up to mark three or four white caps players hovering around the edge of the box and it was like everyone was in there on the for the wall and they just weren't able to react to that second phase i didn't i don't hate the idea i think it's useful i just think maybe you don't need a four or five man wall there but maybe you do because it's a it's it's tough because i think that area is the toughest free kick area because you, it's so hard to get it up and over and into the corner so i don't think you need as many guys but also if you get it under the wall from that distance it's like a goal eight times out of ten so i do see the the need for uh covering it but i don't think it's as bad as maybe you say i just think it was a uh, circumstance because that bounce to Baldissimo is ridiculous that hit off yeah. the guy in the wall bounce right to him all he has to do is take a touch and the finish like not to take any way that's a ridiculous finish but to have the ball bounce for him like that is pretty pretty for unfortunate for TFC and uh, for him to pick a hole right between their defenders is also pretty unfortunate from their perspective so maybe but, but, we'll count it as a hindsight is 2020 kind of deal sure I, I think that's fair but but TFC did uh, did capitalize on one of their chances, not not too too soon afterwards, responding. And I had written down in my notes for this one: lack of pressure on the second goal, ridiculous. Why do they drop off so deep? And I think this was maybe even more egregious than the first goal the Whitecaps allowed because I don't know were they nine ten men back deep in their own box, and it just and, and nonetheless you know, you, you still can't cover someone, you know, right out, right outside your own goal. So uh, Alex, I'm curious for, for your thoughts on, on the Whitecaps defensive positioning on that one. And I also had written down, despite the win, was this a bit of a step back for the Whitecaps defensively? Cause I felt like other than the two breakdowns at Montreal, they'd had some positive moments and we'd kind of been saying, yeah, they need to clean some things up, but they've had, good defensive performances at times, but this one felt a, a little more susceptible because there were lots of high quality TFC scoring chances. And I guess it's a bit difficult to decide how much of that is down to the brilliance of Pozuelo and Piatti versus the Whitecaps frailties. Yeah. I don't know. It's tough to see. I think I, I can't. Yeah. I don't know. The de- defense is tough. Cause I think of that moment, like obviously that goal, the closing down is abysmal, but you have to give credit to that run from Pozuelo. And that's tough on Nerwinski and Rose because if you watch the replay, Pozuelo, the sneaky guy is, first of all, you don't expect him to pop up in the box and score a header, but he kind of like hangs off of Rose or 
Like he hangs off of Nerwinski in a 1v1, but then another guy joins him and then Nerwinski's left to guard, like guard. He, not basketball. Poz- Pozuelo did a perfect job of making both Rose and Nerwinski think that the other guy was going to mark him. And then he just kind of somehow slithers between the two of them. Yeah, it was just like, it was such a little moment of, you know, it was a smart run. You don't see that often. Often you see a big striker just run off the shoulder of the guy and be like, I don't care, I'm going to head it in. And I mean, credit, like, look at Cavallini's goal in the first one. He didn't do that. And look what it, it did. He made a nice run right in between the center back and the left back. Great ball. And I think we saw Pozuelo do that. And I think there's not many defenders who are going to able to mark that if you make a run like that, if the ball is perfect. And that's where you're going to need it's always you always need something and i think there in this case it was the closing down other times maybe the goalie could have came out and i think hassal he 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 was not not he was fine on that goal he was kind of it was fairly on his line i think you can't blame him and it's a combination i think the defenders don't pick up his run hassal is stuck on his line the defend they don't close him down kind of like the first goal it was just a calamity of errors that could have maybe been stopped at the at the source and just maybe it shows the importance of closing down players at the top of the box. It seems old. We've been saying this for years now, but yes. Yeah. I think just to be clear, I'm not blaming Nerwinski or Rose for that goal. I think it's, as you said, one of those things where you need to, you know, cut it off at the source, which is providing greater pressure on that initial ball and not allowing TFC to freely just, place a ball right on the head of Pozuelo. You know, he makes that run, but if you prevent him from getting the service, then it doesn't matter how clever the run is. But uh, I think that, you know, the Whitecaps respond with, uh, it, it was nice to see a rather cleverly done set piece of their own, although I'm not entirely sure whether Adnan meant to hit that ball as hard as he did. I'm not quite sure if that was just rose with a really really good reaction (laughs) to to the overhit cross or whether that was the plan all along i'm not i don't want to say emphatically either way but andy rose and uh i don't know who is beside andy rose but one player for the whitecaps kind of like looked it off and let andy play it back in and then jake norwinski might have been cornelius it was a good, yeah, but it was a good job to just kind of let that ball go. I, Andy probably said something like, "Hey, leave it," and he played a nice ball. You know, whenever those balls come back across the face of the goal, they're always dangerous. And Jake Nerwinski doing a really good job, kind of holding off his defender, getting body positioning, and um, and finishing strongly. So, you know, two set piece goals, one very nicely put together goal. Um, from the Whitecaps, Cavallini getting on the board. I think lots of positives, but still lots of things to work on as well. Yeah, goals are goals. I think you want to see more chances, and I think got to get them somehow. That first goal, I want to. I hope yeah. they go to training and they do that over and over. Because for me, that was the best goal of the game. Honestly, Baldissimo, yes, his goal was an absolute belter, but the fact that the Whitecaps scored a twenty-five plus pass move, where they started at their back and recycled the ball three times. Like, how often have we seen them try to build up, turn it over, kick it long to no one, or just do something of the likes? To see them be so patient, that was amazing. I think if you're the Whitecaps and you, they consistently take that, do it over and over, hold 55% possession, 
like they could dominate teams if they do that more consistently. Well, so ultimately, ultimately, that's the goal that you hope is more repeatable, right? I mean, the Baldissimo one's a moment of brilliance, but you're if you're Mark DeSantos, you're saying, hey, if we're capable of doing that, we need to be doing that match in, match out. Yeah, no, that's the way he wants to play. He's talked about it. We haven't seen it much, but now that we've seen it, okay, it exists. It's out there. You now even want to see more. Because set piece brilliance is going to come and go. It's going to go. I, don't, I think the Whitecaps are actually quite, usually pretty good set piece wise. I mean, Cornelius, he's solid head of the ball. Andy Rose is an imposing figure. Yasser Kamiri, when he's on the pitch, is an absolute, you know, he's a tall guy. Theo Bear, Lucas Cavallini, those are good headers of the ball. Or at least either they're big or they're good at heading the ball or both. Like, that's pretty dangerous on set pieces. So I'm not worried about the Whitecaps set piece, even from dead balls. Ali Adnan's left foot's a piece of magic. Obviously, the ball most. Pretty darn good on the dead balls himself, Leonard Owusu, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not worried about set piece, but I want to see them start doing that in possession. Take the ball, start from the back and kind of – it felt like recently they'd be like, oh, you're pressing us, so we're going to get rid of it. In, this, in that case of that goal, they're like, we got the ball and we don't care how many guys you send forward, we're going to do what we want with it. And I, I want to see more of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that pretty much I, – I don't know if I have a – a whole lot more to say on that on that Whitecaps match. I Pretty think it's much. a, you know, was was the play miles better than anything we've seen before? No. Not necessarily, but was it a step in the right direction? Sure. And I think after seeing the Whitecaps struggle as mightily as they have recently, that's something you're just going to take and try to build on. And the fact that the Whitecaps secondarily still kind of keep their Canadian Championship hopes alive, however slim gives them something to play for in these home matches and kind of continues that motivation. So I think that that's really positive. But um, other than that, do we want to talk a little bit of Canadian Premier League? Keeping in mind, I didn't watch either of those last day matches on the weekend. Well, I didn't watch any of the matches on the weekend, but uh, do want to touch on the four teams moving on, just kind of thoughts on the first stage as well. Well, I think my last... To finish off on the Whitecaps on a good note, I just think I want to see them dominate the Impact. And the Impact are a good team, but the Impact in all four of their games, I think they've held less than 50 or, God, how many? They've played three games. In all three of their games, they've held less than 50% possession. When they played the Whitecaps, the Whitecaps had 55%. If they're going to have a lot of the ball, I want to see improvement. That's all. But for CPL, what a weekend. I watched... uh, three of the four uh, I missed uh, well, I caught part actually I caught parts of all four I missed a good chunk of Halifax versus uh, I want to say Ottawa and then I also uh, missed uh, the first half of Valor versus actually what was the first game of the weekend it was it York Cavalry it was it I think it was York Cavalry I think I caught Valor versus uh, oh my, my my brain is tripping right now Fort, Fort, forge and forge valor. and valor was the first match of the weekend ah, saturday, okay. saturday that, morning then i that that's the one i missed half of was forge valor and then i caught all of cavalry uh, york boy that was a tougher and then obviously i caught pacific uh, versus edmonton so what a weekend that's all i can say for that i mean the week as well that Ottawa victory over Pacific kept things all 17 that were alive thrilling yeah all, all teams were alive i mean it was mind-boggling that Pacific one of the teams of the tournament was about to go out with six minutes to go to Edmonton and I just think it was quality all around I think 
even if you're Edmonton, you, there's a lot to be excited for. Easton Ongaro scored three, four, no, three goals, I think. Boy, I think three or four. He, he was surprisingly good despite a slow start. Their defense, they lost Didich for a few games. And you do wonder if this is the last time he's going to be in an Edmonton uniform because I just feel like it's a matter of time before someone snaps him up. But them, it was definitely a, a bit of injury luck, a bit of just not being able to score because I think by the advanced metrics, they were all in the middle of the pack. So it makes me look bad because I predicted them to go to the final four. I'm going to own that one. That was a unfortunate mistake. Well, not mistake. I just... Thing, it, was, it, wasn't it was just unfortunate the way it panned out. It was, I think it was out of, largely out of your control. And, and we saw it that was, they played like a middle-of-the-pack team, and certainly if things had gone the other way from a, a luck and injury perspective, they could have snuck in given how close this format was. Yeah, and then aside from that, I think every other team impressed except York. I think that's <laughs> credit to us because we kind of felt that one coming, I guess. But Valor, I was really impressed with Valor. I thought they looked Val- a lot Valor's more Valor's the feel-good story of the first stage. Is Even though they didn't make it out, I think just the they looked, level of improvement from last season. Like Defensively, they looked so much better. Offensively, they were surprisingly good. Like They got pieces. Ottawa as well. They got, they're a young team. For, they were playing they're with house money. They're still missing a bunch of guys to, for them they were to expecting to bring in. Yeah, and for them to be that close to making the first, like the playoffs in their first go around of things, like they're gonna, they look, played probably the best, some of the best football too. I saw at least when they weren't tired and weren't dealing with red cards and injuries. So like those two teams, most people had Ottawa and Valor seventh and eighth in some sort of order. They blew their expectations out of the park. Um, the last team to be eliminated, York. It's tough with them because they suffered a lot of injuries. So I don't want to be fully on with like against them because at least unlike a Valor or Ottawa, they were only a point behind like Valor and Ottawa. They kind of fight, they fought, but they, you know, it wasn't meant to be York. It kind of felt more like they threw their chances away. Whereas Ottawa and Valor definitely, it kind of felt like they pushed and made it competitive. And with York, it's tough. Cause I mean, they have injuries. Petrasso was gone for a lot of the tournament. Um, Chris Manella, one of their new signings only really came in, got to play the last two games because of injuries, but they just didn't look good. It was tough. They'd always play down or play up. Like they, they beat Forge. Incredible games. I was quite impressed how maybe they weren't, it wasn't sexy. It was three set. I think it was like a 2 1 win or 3 1 win. And they it was, was, all it was set three, three set pieces. All three goals were on set pieces. So it wasn't a sexy win, but that's a great a win's a win. And they got it very, what's the word? Not convincingly. They convinced me that, okay, this York team is better. But it felt like they played up and played down to their opposition. I feel like their games, I think when they drew, I think it was Valor. I mean, they, they threw away a lead against Pacific. I mean, Pacific's a good team. So, again, they play, maybe they played up to them for most of the game and threw away a lead. They kind of played down, uh, you know, not play. It's tough to say play down and play up because I think the level is similar. But I felt like they maybe, at least to, to teams they should have been beating theoretically on paper, they kind of played down and uh, vice versa. So that's tough with them. And then Forge and Cavalry, we know what they're capable of. Cavalry surprised us. Forge kind of slipped up, but they were rotating quite heavily. And obviously they had the U23 minutes issue, which they did pass. So they all are U21 minutes. So they did pass despite a lot of, arguing and ink spilled over that and then uh pacific and halifax we uh we were both 
I'm, you know, maybe you were a little more sold on Halifax than I was, but I did say they had a lot of potential and uh, Pacific, uh, they showed what they're capable of. Yeah. So for me to just kind of go around the remaining teams on my thoughts, I think we, I think we nailed our thoughts on York in the pre-tournament predictions because everyone knows, and and we weren't going to deny that they had offensive weapons and that they could beat the best teams in the Canadian Premier League. It was a question of consistency and it was a question of kind of their, their boomer bust potential. And we just saw enough of a mixed bag that it ended up costing them at the end of the day. And I think that's until they address some of those issues, they're going to continue to have those problems. And then in terms of, yeah, I mean, Pacific and Halifax, I think, continue to be super, super impressed. I think the facts that, that excuse me, the fact that Halifax without Yao Morelli, potentially their best player, without him in those last two matches that they took care of business was a real show of intent. And I'm definitely, I think I'm even maybe expecting a bit more from them in the second stage than I would have said before the tournament. Pacific just continues to build. And I guess my storyline for Cavalry and Forge is just, they're not looking quite as unbeatable as it seemed after the opening three or four matches of the tournament. And so this feels very wide open now as we head into the second stage. And I'm, I'm super excited because I feel much like it ended up feeling at the end of the first stage, every team has a shot. You know, we saw Athletic Ottawa with some surprise results. We saw FC Edmonton give Pacific a scare we saw York beat Forge, you know, it's wide, wide open. And I think just the, the level of competition, the level of football that's we've seen in PEI is so good for the game across Canada. And I'm, I'm excited. You know, you wish that the teams that were out, I wish you could see more, right. It's, it's a shame that it's already over for those, those four bottom teams, but uh, hopefully 2021 will bring, more excitement and more matches and yeah, fingers crossed because I'm missing it already. The fact that we're down to four teams, as much as I'm very much looking forward to those matches, it, it sucks that those, those other four teams don't have a chance to continue on for the next little bit. Yeah. I just want to see more. It's tough to, to see them go out like this. And uh, it's good that everyone was in it till the last game barring Edmonton. I think the last game was incredible. I watched it Pacific Edmonton, Pacific. Well, Edmonton had a role to play, which was which was great. Spoiler and Pacific, they were not good, and they went down one nil. And credit to them, they woke up. They scored a you know a scrappy set piece goal. It's one one, and then all of a sudden, uh, they score Bustos, one of the goals of the tournament, just in terms of quality. Because Caden Chung, who Pamudu caught after the game, told us was the best right back in Canada right now. And I'm based on what I've seen, I'm not too hard pressed to disagree. At least, you know, there are some candidates, but he is really rose. His stock has gone through the roof. And I think if you're the Whitecaps are familiar with him and other teams around the world slash MLS or North America who need a right back, look at him. He's a young prospect who's worth watching. And he always has been since his day with the Whitecaps. But he makes a great run, passes to Bustos, one touch, side netting, 86th minute, late drama, the celebration to show for it. It's all you wanted, really. And, it's just there was a lot of memorable games, lots of late goals, lots of red cards. And now the second stage is going to be huge because everything means so much. And the fact that Pacific opens against Cavalry, a team they beat, it's a huge grudge match. Whereas Halifax takes on Forge, their game was really cagey and 
and tight. I think all four teams are really evenly split. And I think it's tough to see what I'd predict for the second round because I do feel like we're going to see one of Forge or Cavalry fall. I'm just not sure. Because for me, Forge finished third and they're the team you could maybe be down on. But with them, no, they're they're the scariest because I think they're just like, lurking. The thing, well, they're lurking in the shadows right now. Is how I feel about Forge. Well, because like uh, what I'm going to say for Forge is they they finished third, yeah, but they were the first team to qualify and they rotated their front three every game for no reason. They're like, let's just give because Mo they could. I in, think they were like, let's play Mobabuli. Remember, it was playing indoor soccer for the Mississauga Metro Stars a year ago. Like, oh. let's give them 70 minutes in the front line just to give Anthony Novak a break. Because why not? Whereas some of these teams are like, let's run our guys into the ground. Like Lucas McNaughton on Pacific had to get rested the last game because he, he played every minute up to that point. Thomas Neal played every minute. I mean, some of the other forwards, Bustos played every game. Like, some of these guys are going to be tired. Whereas Forge, it just felt like they're like, oh, whatever, we'll rotate our full team. We'll play, even in the last game, we'll play our backup goalie. Obviously, they needed to for you 21 minutes, but let's just play this guy, Tajman. Again, he was really lights out, surprisingly, despite uh, it being injured for the game as well. He wasn't fully fit, but they had to play him. But Forge is scary just because of that. Cavalry maybe is the one to fall just because their depth is stretched. And they suffered a nasty injury with Oliver Minitello. Again, I wish a safe recovery. That tackle looked nasty. He fractured his two parts of his leg. And it was just, you hate to see a guy, especially Minitello. He's one of the nice guys in the league, like one of the good guys in the league. I mean, there's a lot of good guys, but he's one of those good guys in the league. Everyone likes him. He's a quality player. It's tough to see them go. And already for a Cavalry team that has suffered with internationals not coming and injuries and stuff, they're stretched in. So I think right now it's kind of going to be a, a battle between Halifax, Forge, and I mean Forge, Cavalry, and Pacific to join Forge. And obviously I could be wrong, but based on what I've seen, I think Forge versus Halifax is surprisingly the early favorite as the final. But don't sleep on Pacific or Cavalry. Yeah, it's 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 wide open, and I'm I'm very hesitant to to put any you know grand predictions on it. But I, I think that if I if I did have to back two teams. Is, so, I, I mean, I predicted Pacific to win it all, but at the moment, riding the momentum, I'm kind of feeling Halifax and Forge going through. But, I, I, okay. yeah, I think, I think for me, Cavalry is probably the one I expect to, to fall out of that because just uh, some of their matches down the stretch there in the first stage weren't terribly confidence-inspiring. And I think it, you're seeing a bit of, the, a, a bit of the, the potential cracks and vulnerabilities there. But those other three teams, I'm, I'm pretty excited and pretty buoyant about and think any of those three teams could, could take the title. And given me saying that, Cavalry will probably take it all, but we'll just have to wait and see. I'll just say my prediction, I want to bet against Forge and go for a Pacific Halifax final. I can't. Forge no, is too good. Can't, so can't I'm do bet- it. Forge is just too good. I think I'll bet again. I'll bet Forge. And then for me, I'm going to go in the short tournament format. I think we're going to see, I don't want to copy you, but I think we're, we're going to, so I'm, I think we're going to see Pacific, uh, yeah. Pacific catch some lightning in a bottle. They're waking up that last win lit a fire up under them. They, they lost on forge to a last minute goal. They drew Halifax with the last minute goal. They beat cavalry. I think they're going to reverse some of those results. Okay, well, I think that uh, that almost brings us to the end of the show. But one thing we, I think, wanted to touch on right before we finish off was some relatively late-breaking Whitecaps news in the form of 
academy updates and and coaching roles shifting. So uh, we just received this raise. The podcast began, but uh, Alex, I don't know if you want to. You're the one that tweeted this out, so you can you can take us us through the changes happening both within the first team and the Whitecaps youth system. I mean, it's an interesting one because Dartini regarded as one of the best. Like he's a really good coach. Like he's really tactically, he knows a lot. He's got all the licenses. He's coached in Italy. So for him, he was definitely seen as one of the big guys on the assistance of MDS. Like he plays a huge role. And I do think with this new role, he's still going to play a role, but obviously they, they said they're bringing in a new guy to, or a new person, whomever it may be for uh DeSantos's staff. But I think this is huge for the Academy. I think it's a big loss for the first team. And obviously they'll work with them for the first year. Obviously until they hire a new person, I can't say how big of a loss it will be for the first team. But I think for the Academy, it's huge to have a person of his, how do I say, of, of his caliber, of his, reputation at, at the helm well, of the I'd say of, I'd say of his of his experience I think I think the the worldly experience and the the high level of coaching that he's been around and been involved with to to bring that kind of quality to the youth system is very exciting but it does leave a a gap in the first team that's going to need to be filled by someone you know hopefully equally as as qualified and and who can bring as much to the table yeah, and obviously we don't know maybe how much of uh, how do I say uh, uh, how much maybe with the kids the role of the academy how well you know, you never know how someone's going to transition over but if he can he and MDS can kind of create a that whole idea of a linear pathway kids you know the, the academy picking up a similar model of play that the first team wants to emulate and vice versa as we've seen lately obviously Craig Dalrymple. You know, maybe it was time. He, he, he's for from you know all accounts, it seems like yeah, he was doing a you know pretty decent job with the academy kids. There's a lot of good kids coming through, but again, the kit of a, a generation can always be the, just that generational. We obviously this 98s, 99s, 2000s, 01s, and 02s have been a really good set of five years. I mean, there's Davies who's an 00, Bear who's a 99, Pasil who's like an 02, Coline who's an 02, Baldismo's an 00, and all these guys in that range are kind of Hassel the 98. Like it's obviously a, a special age group, but maybe now with Startini, we can consistently see more of those generations and see more of a pathway. And I'm sure him and DeSantos are working on a way to get a second team to establish a pathway. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of thing where De- Nick Dasovich is coaching that second team with Startini and working with him. And you, we kind of have to see it in action, but there is a lot of potential there. And I think uh, it's, it's an interesting move and one that, again, it may hurt the first team, but if it helps the, the youth team, it could be a very good long-term impact. So in the one last part of this equation that I just wanted to point out and that was uh, suggested by one of our, our fellow media members is what this kind of means about the, the Whitecaps' position on the first team coaching staff, because in the press release, it says that they're going to look to find a new first-team assistant, which will be added in 2021. And that seems to indicate, if you're reading between the lines, that Mark DeSantos and the rest of his staff will be back in 2021. Now, I don't want to say that that can't change, because certainly it could, but, but it is interesting to hear it phrased in a way where 
it very much seems like Mark DeSantos, Phil DeSantos, and Yusuf Daha, the rest of that staff are likely coming back in 2021, and they'll just look to plug and play, replace that role. Well, it's tough because obviously there's results and you do wonder at what point the leash with the Santos becomes short. And last year was as long as it could be. Maybe this year with, especially maybe with some fans, it's kind of, maybe some fans aren't as big of a fan of them, of him as they, they were before. They maybe aren't as patient, but it's tough because the Whitecaps have gone kind of through so much turmoil that it's like, you kind of want to see them play out this plan because they have, pieces in place uh obviously shoes there was that whole link with that mech the coach in mexico and you do wonder what that was about if it was going to be it was a coach or a director this and that but now that they have schuster at the helm of the player ops side they have mds on the on the coaching side they have startini on the academy side those are all three of you know they seem to all work together and they have a plan you do kind of want to see what it starts to look like two or three years because as much as you you do want to you do wonder what a new coach could do behind the bench because maybe we have said sometimes you know that maybe there could be a maximization of what they have but at the same time you do want to see a plan and in MLS sometimes in a league like this where you can have the long view because this isn't the prem where you're a team getting promoted you have to stay alive for the revenue purposes there's no relegation you have maybe a few years to build a project with all these youngsters because these this team's a young team. I think you look at all the pieces, what Hassal, he's, he's 21, Crepo is 25, Cornelius is 22, Renko Veselinovic is 21, Godoy is 25, Norinsky is 25. I mean, Adnan maybe is a 26. We, we don't know, and he might be moving on soon. But guys, you looking guys are your long term. Gutierrez is twenty. Who can really say how old Adnan is? I don't even know how. We I, that's a whole different story. But Olusu is twenty two or twenty three. Bakel is twenty two. Uh, Baldissimo's twenty. Bear is twenty. Just turned. He's about to turn twenty one. Right? He's in his tw- early, very early twenties. Cavallini's twenty six. Milinkovic is 25-26, Dahomey is 25. Like, that's a lot of young players. The only really senior members are Montero, who pretty much seems like his foot's already out the door. Ricketts, who's a great mentor. He's going to be here for a while, I think, 33. Rose, who's obviously a mentor similar to Ricketts. But besides those, like, that's a young team. And I think uh, you do kind of want to see in MLS what these guys can grow into, provided they find those, those last pieces, those last DPs, they get more youth players integrated. It's an interesting project, and you do kind of wonder if this is maybe more provided everyone is on board, wants to stick around. This is kind of a project for maybe two or three or four years instead of a one-year, two-year project. Yeah, there's certainly something to be said for consistency. And me bringing up the, you know, bringing up whether or not DeSantos is going to be back next season would never be because that's necessarily what I, you know, that I think moving on would be the best thing for the franchise. I think it's you know, it's tough to go through these growing pains and you have such a young roster. Ultimately, if it's a project that's going to be successful, you'd hope that you could do that with the same group relatively from start to finish. And that includes the coaching staff so that they can all kind of grow and build together. And Mark DeSantos talked last year about what a growth experience it was, how he hadn't been part of a team in such a long time that had struggled the way they have. And then, you know, going through everything the team's 
had to deal with in 2020. And, you know, hopefully if the Whitecaps can build on this victory and see out a few more good results the rest of the year, that's something to, you know, move forward in 2021. And, and I think if Mark DeSantos and his team stayed on and, you know, they're able to put together a better product on the pitch in 2021, I think lots of people in Vancouver would be happy. They just want to see that continued progress. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty much the, the, the concluding point I think we'll go with. I think obviously there's always going to be impatient fans and I think there's going to be overly patient fans. And definitely I, I do tend to be someone who's maybe more patient in what, what I've seen, but I do think I, everyone involved does want to just see this club on the field grow. And I think it's tough this year because it's just such a unique year. You can't sack a, a coach after a year like this. And they've just been missing these players. And that's, I mean, you tough. can, but, but you maybe, won't, you maybe don't want to. Well, you'd have to be in a certain position to do it. And I don't think the white caps are there yet. There are a lot of their new signings. Like Bikel's played one game. Eric Godoy played his first game of the year and it's freaking eighth of the, the fifth of September. Yeah, ditto with Bikel, ditto like other some of these other guys. We haven't seen Lucas Cavallini, Ali Adnan, Janio Bikel, Leonard Awusu, like all these big DP slash Tam guys on the field at once. So I just you know it's it's a it's a long term it's a long term project. So just want to see them all get a chance and kind of see okay is there growth and then when there really starts to become problematic stagnation, then you look okay maybe we do need to to make a change. But yeah, basically, if you're if you're reading between the lines in that press release, maybe don't hold your breath for a coaching change in 2021. I mean, lots of things could change between now and then, but it does seem seem especially off of the win, like the Whitecaps might be relatively confident in their coaching staff moving forwards. But that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode number 41 in the third sub. I think we're going to endeavor to bring someone on from La Belle Provence if we can to uh, you know do a little Montreal preview upcoming here because we got a few matches and uh, yours truly is going to be in attendance so Alex and I will both be at the stadium for those matches so looking forward to bringing you some content surrounding that and uh, you can find me as always on Twitter at Samuel underscore rowboat where and 86forever.com where we'll be pumping out more pre post during match coverage and Alex over to you you can find me on Twitter at Alex Agonge Rubik and at BTS Ben City and uh, I will have some of my thoughts on writing obviously uh back to school i'm still a young lad i've jumped back into a university cycle um today we're recording in the afternoon i woke up at uh 5 30 in the morning because i go to school out east but i'm staying in vancouver due to covid so and then those 8 a.m classes which actually happen to be much earlier yeah so i might be a bit groggy sometimes but i'm so it's it's gonna be a fun fall lots of lots of white cap stuff lots of school stuff lots going on but uh we're we're gonna be here for it and uh yeah, stay safe. There's a bunch of smoke over Vancouver right now, so uh, don't don't stretch your lungs out too hard, and uh, stay safe, and we'll catch you on the other side. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Talk again soon.